we're getting to the center of these seven letters, and I really want us to deal with it. For the sake of time, we're not going to do a recap of the previous lessons, um, but, but to recognize that we need to hear what Jesus has to say to these churches. We need to be listening and paying attention to what he's speaking to these churches. And we've seen that each week, that, that these seven churches are representative churches. They're real churches facing real-life issues. Um, and, and there are real life lessons for us today uh, as they represent what the church has been enduring since Jesus' ascension and as we wait for the end. But I want to call out quickly, just for the sake of seeing this pattern built out and the strength of, that, of, the, uh, of us recognizing these are relevant words for us today. There, there's a pattern here. It's called a chiasmus or a chiasm. There's this way in which the flow of the letters is functioning that's driving to a central point. And the reason I bring it out today is because we are coming to the center letter. We're coming to the focal point of what Jesus is driving to in all of these letters, this, this fourth letter to the church at Thyatira. And let me just show you real quickly how it works. So, so a chiasm is basically, uh, uh, it, it's like the phrase, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And so it's almost, it's a phrase or a literary device that pre- presents a point, and then mirror images that point to really drive something home. So when the going gets tough, it's stated one way, the tough get going. And that, and that mirror image drives a point home even further. And, and that is happening across these seven letters. So as we look at them, we have Ephesus on the first letter paired with or mirror imaged by Laodicea. And both of those churches are churches that are facing judgment to the point that Jesus is going to say, if there's no repentance, you're not a church anymore. A a judgment that, that basically demonstrates they are no longer his people. Both of them are facing that. You step into the second and sixth letter, which is Smyrna and Philadelphia, and what you have is churches that Jesus complained that didn't complain against at all. He only commended them as they faced extreme circumstances and situations. And then you step into the center three letters, and what we see happening in those three central letters is um, a progression of toleration or compromise with evil and uh, uh, false teaching that progresses from bad to worse. And then we come into this central letter. It's the longest letter of them all. And right in the middle of it, Jesus emphasizes why this is happening. What his purpose is in allowing it to happen. Because he wants all the churches to know. In fact, you're going to see him say that. I want all the churches to know who I am and why it's so important that you live in step with my teaching. This whole point, the whole reason that he's writing these letters over and over restated in different lessons driven by this one idea so that that my people, so that all the churches know I am him who sees and discerns what's in people's minds and hearts. I am him who is able to judge and to repay what people have earned. And so, so we need to pay attention. There's so much that the church continues to need. We need these letters and we need this book of Revelation. And so today as we step in, I just want to encourage you to listen, to hear what he said at every step. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. 
Don't just, don't just let it bounce off your eardrums, but listen, pay attention, and walk in step with it. So Revelation 2, 18 through 29, we're going to be looking at the letter to Thyatira, and we'll dig in, we'll look at the principle that's laid out there, and uh, just see what the Lord has for us. So let's read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dig in. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and, who, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know. Listen, all the churches will know. The ones in, all the way from Ephesus to Laodicea, all the churches will know. I am he who searches mind and heart. I will give to you each according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not, or to you I say, I do not lay on you another bur- burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would just be with us now, that you would help us in this. That you would would help us to hear, to to listen, to pay attention, to, 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 to hear so well that we are shaped by what we've heard, that we're transformed by it, that we long for the things that you long for, that we, that we give ourselves to the things that you've called us to. And I pray that today as we study these words to the church in Thyatira, that we won't just approach them as words that were said some, a long time ago that don't have meaning for us, but that we will see the relevance in our lives today, how necessary it is that we would, that we would know them as we wait on you as we wait on you to come again, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Each week we've sought to set out a principle, the, the, the main idea of each letter. And in this week, that I, I would present this to you as the summation of Jesus' teaching to the church in Thyatira. And this, this is it. Tolerating the intolerable is neither faithful nor loving. Tolerating the intolerable is neither faithful nor loving. We must reject the lies of false teachers that lead to anything other than patient endurance as faithful witnesses. We must reject the lies of false teachers that lead to anything other than patient endurance as faithful witnesses. You think about the idea of tolerance today. Tolerance is like one of the highest, most highly prized virtues of our common culture. I mean, it's, it's actually a necessary thing when you think about it because we live in a pluralistic society that has uh, pluralistic values, pluralistic devotions, different ways in which they give their lives. And, 
And, and yet, we have this idea of tolerance that's not really truly tolerance. It no longer fits the definition of tolerance. We call tolerance what's truly affirmation. We, 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 call, we, we, we say we affirm something and that therefore we're tolerating it. But that's a misunderstanding of what tolerance is to begin with. In fact, if you... Let's just think of it in terms of sexual morality, sexual immorality, those kind of things that's, that's drawn out in this letter... In, in our common culture, if you say that anything, that sex outside of marriage or that homosexuality or bisexuality is, is immoral, if you stand against it, then you are said to not be tolerant, right? The, the idea of tolerance that our world holds is, is actually what we would call affirmation or condoning something, that we don't speak against it. But inherent in the real idea of what tolerance is, inherent in it is the fact that you're offended by something, that you recognize something is wrong, and yet you endure alongside it anyway. We don't have to tolerate things that we affirm. We don't have to tolerate things that we agree with because there's nothing that's offending us, nothing that's contrary to our ideals. You do have to tolerate a rock in your shoe. You don't want the rock in your shoe. It's uncomfortable. It causes you problems. It hurts. But if you're not in a place to take it out, then you must tolerate it. You have to deal with it. And there is a biblical precedent for tolerance. There is a biblical idea in which, a, a biblical way in which we are called to tolerate one another. The biblical words for that are forbearance, patience, or long-suffering. So we're, we're called to bear with one another in our struggles with sin, right? We're, we're called to bear with one another and endure one another's imperfections. We're, we're called to be long-suffering towards one another even when we don't live up to, our, to each other's ideals or live up to what we know the Bible would call us to. We were talking about this in our, our class this morning with the youth. The idea that Jesus' disciples would commit, hey, we're never going to leave you. We're never going to deny you. Jesus, or Peter himself says, even if I have to die for you, I'll never deny your name. Jesus is long-suffering with them. He's tolerant towards them, even in their imperfections. And we actually saw as he's arrested and about to be tried, they all deserted him. But in that same passage, we see he has a plan to meet them in Galilee after his resurrection. He's tolerating them. He's long-suffering. He's forbearing their inadequacies, their, their sinful natures. He's dealing with it. He's enduring alongside it. But there is a limit to his tolerance. There is a limit in which tolerance can go no further. There are things that are intolerable, right? We live in a sinful world. We, we have to, in, at some level, tolerate the sinful world that we live in. But even this sinful world in which we live understands that tolerance has its limits. Even the world we live in will not tolerate a pedophile working in children's circles, right? Like we, we would not allow a, 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 a known pedophile to work inside of a school system. Most people wouldn't tolerate that. We don't tolerate drunk drivers killing innocent victims on the road. We don't tolerate murder. We don't tolerate theft. Certainly there are people that do it, but we don't tolerate it. We don't, we don't say, oh, well, it's, 
It's, it's okay. Let the thief steal. They, they, you know, it's no problem. Let them do these things. Even a sinful world recognizes there's a limit to tolerance. There, there are things that are intolerable. We, we have to deal with it, though. We have to learn to find these things out. And then what sets the stage or what determines what is truly intolerable? What is it that we shouldn't tolerate? Like That's really becomes the question because at the heart of the problem here in Thyatira, at the heart of the problem is their issue of tolerance. They have begun to tolerate what is intolerable. We need to be thoughtful of this. We need to be considerate of this because though we don't, we don't, we don't have a, we, we don't live in a world that's exactly like what was happening then. We don't know a ton about Thyatira. We don't know exactly what uh, was happening inside the city, but we know the surrounding culture. They didn't have all the technological advances. They didn't have the same struggles that we have. They weren't voting for their presidents and arguing over whether you should be on the left or on the right. They weren't, they weren't wrestling with those kinds of issues. They, that wasn't what was at heart or at play. Well, what we do know is that they were like a blue-collar kind of town. That what we know from history is that Thyatira was filled with trade guilds. They were filled with unions, basically. So there was the, the union of wool workers and the union of, of uh, sheep herders. I don't know, you, you, all kinds of silversmiths and, and metal workers. There was all of these unions that people worked in and, and, and stayed in step with, much like the blue-collar towns that you might know. You know, they, they had certain ideals that they stood for. They had certain, certain traditions and certain practices. So they each had, um, uh, what, uh, the, the word is escaping me, patron saints, if you will. That they had these gods that they would sacrifice to and that they would worship as they'd come together. And here in the middle of this blue-collar town is a church that knows Jesus that longs to live in light of the truth, and we see that in the things that he commends, but they have begun to tolerate what is intolerable. And, and I think, I, 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 don't, I don't know exactly that this is accurate, but, but based on my perspective, I think that this is one of the most relevant, one of the most accurate letters to what the church in America faces today is that we're wrestling with and struggling with the idea of how do we tolerate this sinful world that we live in while not tolerating what's intolerable. Well, how do we discern that? What, what, what do we build that out of? How do, how do we seek to live in light of that? And I think that we actually see Jesus dealing with that as he commends, as he complains against the church, as he as he calls them to something, I think we see all those things working out. So Jesus' condemnation for the church in Thyatira, what does he commend? He calls out their, their love, right? Their, their faith, their service, their, their patient endurance. But he doesn't just call those things out. He says those latter works, the works that are, are, are being expressed today are greater than the first. So they're growing in love. They're growing in faith. They're growing in service. It's increasing. 
they're not a people who just had this immediate response and got excited and out of emotion ran and did a couple of things because, hey, you know, that's what we do. You, know, you, you, you go to a conference and you're on a high coming out of a conference. For the youth, it'd be like going to youth camp and you just came back from camp and you're on this emotional rush and I'm going to commit my life to the Lord. I'm going to do all these things. And in about a week and a half or two weeks in, life settles back down and the emotional rush is gone These are people who were committed to these things. They weren't just running on the emotion. They weren't just all hyped up because they had this great experience. These are people who believed these things. And as they matured, it became more and more evident that they were a people marked by love. Active. Not not just the emotional love like this, oh, I love you. I love you too. But active, sacrificial beneficial effort bestowed on another person. You might even say what we've sought to do this month as we have expressed gratitude and honor towards those who have stepped out and led ministry and served other people in the church is a way to show them love, an active, sacrificial, beneficial way in which we bestow good on another person. That kind of love that is Christ-like love they're growing in their faithfulness. Like they're not just, hey, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, they believe in Jesus, but how does that become evident? How do you know that? Because it's shown in their works, and he says to them, I know your works. And the latter works are greater than the former works. The ones that you started out with, those were awesome. But it's increasing, and it's even more evident today that you trust me. We should be able to see that in our lives as we think about this. We should be able to look back across the course of our Christian walk. And, and, and it should be evident in our life. It's right that it become evident that I look back at 10 years, 10 years ago. I'm 51 today. So back at 41, I look back and I think, man, I've grown so much since then. I hope that when I'm 61, I can look back at when I'm 51 and say, man, I have grown so much since then. So that when you look back to your 30s and your 20s, that you're able to see this progression, this growing in trusting the Lord, that you trust him more today than you did that moment that you first believed. The growing in service. The the, the word is diakonos, right? It's It's the same word we use for deacon. And it's people giving of themselves, serving actively, doing something on behalf of some other person. It's not the office of deacon. It's the act of deacon. It's the act of deaconing. It's it's the act of seeing a person in need and and, and being there to meet that need. Seeing a person in need and not having to say, hey, let me know how to help you, but caring enough that you just meet the need. So rather than when somebody's sick calling up and saying, hey, let me know if I can help you, you just show up with a bowl of chicken, well, maybe a whole pot of chicken noodle soup. I mean, you could bring a bowl, but maybe a pot would be better, right? You, you hear <clears throat> of someone hurting and suffering. You don't say, hey, hey, let me, let, me, let me know if there's something you need. But you just step in and begin to meet one another's needs. I mean, imagine how meaningful it would be for you to receive that. How meaningful would it then be for someone else to receive that? I'm not suggesting we shouldn't ask. Don't misunderstand. That's not what I'm after. But but recognizing that sometimes just being proactive 
in pursuit of serving one another. So that our works, our, our service towards one another is greater today than it was in the past. And then he calls out growing in patient endurance. This way in which we're, we're, we're growing in our ability to just tolerate those things that are necessary to tolerate. He's not calling us to be an intolerable people. He's calling us to be a people who trust him so much that we tolerate what is necessary to tolerate until he returns. Think about that. That we endure the hardship, that we endure the difficulty, that we endure those things that we don't agree with, that we don't condone, that we don't affirm in any way. But we have to endure alongside of them until the day comes that he comes and makes all things new. When you think about it, it, it as, as we come to this point, as we see this play out in this, in this letter to Thyatira, <clears throat> this central theme to the book of, of Thyatira is actually a central theme that runs all the way through the book of Revelation from start to finish. To trust the Lord, that he has everything in hand. He's the one that breaks the seals. He's the one that calls for the trumpets to be blasted. He's the one that calls the bowls to be poured out. He's the one that rules all of history, all of mankind. He's the one that knows the day and the time. He's the one that knows when Christ comes back riding that white horse. He's the one who knows. And we wait on him. And we endure this world as we wait on him. Not trying to bring heaven to earth, but waiting for the moment that he brings heaven and puts it with earth, right? That he unites all things in heaven and on earth, that he does that work. He's calling us to, to the right kind of tolerance. <laughs> and he's, he's pointing out to this church, he's saying, look, what you were at the beginning in patient endurance is eclipsed by how patiently endurant you are today. But, you might have swung just a little bit too far. You've gone just a little bit further than you should have. I have this against you. He has a complaint against them, and, and really it's, it's one central complaint that I, I think works itself out in a couple of different ways. Jesus' complaint against this church that he has so much good to say is tolerating the intolerable. They, they're rightly tolerant, but they've gone too far, and they've begun to tolerate what shouldn't be tolerated. And what exactly is that? What exactly is it that, that he's calling them not to tolerate? I have this against you. You tolerated that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food, sacrifice to idols. You're tolerating someone who's telling lies and calling sinful things not sinful. You're tolerating the teaching of someone who's deceiving and seducing people into acting a way that would actually deserve condemnation and judgment. The theory is, and, and, and it's a theory because we don't exactly know, the theory is that this woman Jezebel, and her, her name probably wasn't Jezebel, Jezebel is probably um, uh, a reference back to King Ahab who, who married a woman who was, he was evil, he was known as, as an evil king, and the king of the northern kingdom. He marries a woman who's not Israelite, who's not a Jew, he brings her into the nation, and so from within the nation... From within the, the people of Israel, this woman, who has a strong influence over her husband, and her husband's not a good guy in and of himself, begins to influence Israel to do and act in ways that actually deserve God's judgment 
rather than honor or live in obedience to him. So the theory is that this woman, that this, this lady who had influence in the church, who Jesus compares to or metaphorically refers to as Jezebel, has begun to teach something along the lines of, hey, you got to make a living. You have to work in these trade guilds. It's, it's the only way you make a living and, and can survive in Thyatira. So when you go to these trade guild celebrations and they sacrifice this food to these idols, it's okay if you eat it because we know. We know idols are nothing. We know idols are, are just figments of our imagination. It's okay if you sit in that room and eat that food as everybody else is celebrating the idol that they are worshiping. It's okay if you partake in the spiritual adultery, if you partake in the sexual immorality that takes place in these instances because you don't mean it in your heart, because you know the truth that Jesus is Lord, you can participate and not feel bad about it because God's grace is sufficient. It's going to be all right. You go out there and you just be relevant. You go out there and you just kind of syncretize so you don't stand out too much, so that you don't offend anybody too much, so that, so that you don't get called intolerant, so that you don't stick out like a sore thumb. And this is the theory. We don't exactly know what she's teaching, but she's teaching something like this that leads these, these believers and her own followers to a place where they would begin to, to do the unthinkable they would begin to look exactly like the world they lived in rather than the Christ who had saved them. They would begin to reflect the world they lived in more than the Savior that saved them. The problem with Jezebel is not her gender. And I only have to say this because we live now in a time and place in which there's this argument about roles of men and women in the church. There has been for a long time, but now there's these opposing views that some would immediately run to the place where she's a woman, she should just sit down and shut up and be quiet and never have anything to say. I, I'm so thankful, actually, that we, we, we had a woman. This wasn't planned. It just was the way it worked out, that, that a woman actually read the Scripture this morning and prayed and, 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 and extended some measure of influence, but it was a good, godly influence. I'm actually thankful that happened this morning because there's not, not some among us, but there is a, a, an influence in the culture that would suggest in fact, it's happened once here that someone got up and left because Kara prayed in our church service once. This is, that, that, that's the other side of this coin. The problem is not that she's a woman. In fact, the prophet Joel pronounced all the way back in the Old Testament that in the last days, God would pour out his spirit on men and women and they would both prophesy. My daughters, my male servants, my female servants, my sons and my daughters would prophesy that she's a woman offering an extending influence or prophesying is not the problem. That, that she's a woman, I mean, in the, as you read through the book of Acts, as you read through the New Testament, it's, it's clear that women prayed in services, that women prophesied in services. It becomes clear that the issue is not their prophesying, or they're praying, the issue is the effect of authority, the extension of authority. We are a solidly complementarian church. Male headship in the home and in the church. That's authority. That's the extension and expression of authority. 
to which in the church elders are male and every church member is called to submit, to give up their will, to give up their selfish desires for the pursuit of the common whole that the shepherds or the pastors, the elders lead in. In the home, the wife submits to her husband, not to every man in the church, but to her husband. She willfully gives up her ability to exercise uh, uh, authority because she's submitting herself unto God, as unto Christ is actually what it says in Ephesians. So we're not, we're not suggesting, and I don't want you to hear me suggesting that a woman should carry authority. But influence is different than authority. I hope every man in this room exercises headship in his home and hears the influence of his godly wife. You, you, you see the distinction that's being made there. That you are not a dominating, domineering, uncaring man that beats your wife down with his strength or his words or his attitude, but that loves her like Christ loved the church to wash her in the water of the word, to present himself, to present her beautiful unto himself. But then as she begins to express her faith and her love of the Lord, that there's an influence and a wisdom that comes as you seek to follow the Lord together. The problem is not that she's prophesying. The problem is what she's prophesying. The problem is what she's saying. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus calls out. She's lying. She's seducing my people. She's leading people astray. She's, her, her influence is, is ungodly. And I think ultimately when you begin to extend this out, the issue is not just her false prophecies, although they're false, and he condemns them. The greater problem is that the elders of the church aren't calling them out. The greater problem is that the leaders in the church, those with authority, aren't showing how evil her influence actually is. They are tolerating it, even though it should be counted intolerable. It's tolerated so much by the leaders of the church that, they are, that now members of the church are being seduced and drawn away. That they're being led into this place in which they are now beginning to act on the things that she is saying is okay. So they are practicing sexual immorality. They're practicing uh, this food, eating food sacrificed to idols. They They are practicing a spiritual adultery. So not only are they tolerating the intolerable, the lies that lead them to, to sin, they are actually beginning to sin upon them. The church is actually being affected by it. And those who belong to the Lord are being deceived by it so that that now they are practicing this spiritual adultery. And the two that are clearly called out here, it's the same problem in Pergamum that we saw last week. The two that are clearly called out here are sexual immorality and food sacrificed to idols. We speak about this one enough that I I think it's probably pretty clear, pretty Uh, uh, easy to understand and it it could almost be assumed but I just want to make sure that it's not assumed when we talk about sexual immorality we're talking about any sex act whether hetero 
homo, bio, uh, uh, bia, or uh, mono, like all by yourself. Any sex act that is outside of God's design. He has very narrow limits for sexual activity inside a marriage between a husband and a wife. Now, there's all kinds of room inside of that to explore and to roam and, and enjoy. But anything outside those boundaries is sexual immorality. It is counted sin. And so when someone stands up and says, well, you can participate it because you don't mean it in your heart, or you can participate it so that you don't stick out like a sore thumb, you can participate it because God's grace is sufficient, that kind of lie is intolerable. So this week, it's actually wasn't this week, it was a couple weeks ago, I can't remember exactly when, I just recently saw a, a video of a so-called church leader standing at the front of what appeared to be a church building. I couldn't see a whole lot, but it looked like he was standing at the front of what would be a church building, a, a sanctuary even. He's wearing a rainbow-covered rainbow stole like uh, you know the minister's stole. So he's presenting himself as a leader in the church, and he stands up and he says, Drag is holy. And then he says, let me make sure that the people in the back heard that. Drag is holy. Holy. That is intolerable. That is a lie. That is in opposition to what God's truth says. We must call it out. It has no place among God's people, but unfortunately, it is leading many of God's people astray so that they now affirm and condone sexual immorality. It cannot be. It has no place by that line of thinking next week's chapter is or next week's letter is on the book uh, is the letter to the church in Sardis and he says to them I'm coming like a thief against you so by the logic that this person uses what they do is what they do, what, what he does is hey Jesus once referred to himself speaking to Jerusalem Jesus refers himself as a hen who wants to gather her chicks under her wings so he even put on drag how Absolutely twisted is that. How disgusting is that our Savior would be put in that place because of some metaphorical analogy that he uses and his words twisted to the point that now he would encourage drag. It's absolutely detestable. By that same logic, the people in Sardis who he says to them, I'm coming like a thief, should be able to say then stealing is holy. Nobody's going to stand for that, but they'll celebrate that other ideal. It's absolutely detestable. There's no space for it. Those kind of lies that lead us to a place where we would do something that's dishonorable before the Lord and actually affirm it. The next one is eating food sacrificed to idols. We didn't touch on this deeply last week. We, we saw it. It's a problem that they're, they're wrestling with. It seems pretty straightforward if you just read the book of Revelation. If that's the only book you ever read, then you're going to see this and you're going to think, oh, yeah, no, we just don't eat food sacrificed to idols. And so as we seek to apply that in the world we live in today, anything that's, that's given unto the devotion of some other thing, like, hey, we, we kill cows and eat beef because we just like buying lots of stuff for ourselves. Well, we would never be able to buy meat in a supermarket. We'd never be able to go to a restaurant because most of them are not Christian-based and they're devoted to things and they're giving money to things that we don't appreciate support but that's the, that, that that's what he's after is is hey you you can't eat this food 
But then we know that Revelation is not the only book of the Bible. And when we read 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10, Paul has taken up this argument and dealing with this issue. And he seems to say that you can't eat food sacrifice. Are he and Jesus at odds? Is there a contradiction? Is there a problem between what Paul taught and what Jesus taught? I don't think so. I think if you go and you read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, what you see him saying is the meat itself is not the issue. The meat is amoral, right? There's, there's the, the, the God that they're sacrificing to, the idol that they're sacrificing to is, is a figment of their imagination. They are nothing. And so the meat by its own nature doesn't change no matter what someone does with it. It's still just meat. But if you read it carefully, as he says, you could eat this meat and it's not going to harm you. It's not going to hurt you. It doesn't become evil in of itself. His argument is, for the sake of your witness, when you find out it's been sacrificed to an idol, you shouldn't eat it. Because in so doing, you might be affirming, you are affirming that that idol is something when it's nothing. So he's saying, hey, limit your freedom for the sake of your witness. Limit your ability to eat the meat for the sake of committing yourself more fully to Christ than affirming the idea of idolatry. I think this discussion is being had in a number of circles in our culture today. Can a Christian go to a homosexual wedding without affirming that that's a union that would be acceptable to God. That's one that gets talked about a lot in the circles that I'm in. It's actually a question we present to potential church planters that are, that are looking at planting churches. How, you, you, have a, you have a member of your church and their brother's getting married to a man. How will you counsel them? We want to know where are your allegiances going to lie. Right? We want to know that of the church leaders. What are you going to teach because teaching a lie and affirming that it's okay to sit in a homosexual wedding as if you're not affirming it, that's what the witnesses are there. That's what the people show up for. That's why you go to join in on the celebration. Now, if you plan on going and standing up and saying, hey, this is not a wedding and speaking truth and preaching the gospel, do it. But I'm going to suggest most of us aren't going to do that. So it may be just best if we don't go. Because in our silence, how do we do anything but affirm? I, 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 it's something as simple as cussing, right? Now we know the Bible doesn't have a list of cuss words that you can't say. Although my mom, who's in this room, raised me to know that there's words I should not say. And I'm guessing if you're a parent... You're teaching your kids there's words they should not say. But you can't turn to the Bible and find those words, right? So, so what, what, why would we not cuss then? I can just say whatever words I want. Except that the culture we live in knows what those words are. They know. They know. In fact, they, they rate movies based on those words and how many of them get used in those movies and, and which ones get used because some are worse than others. They understand that there's words, and whether you agree with it or whether you recognize this 
foolishness and it's fictitious and it's just some made up cultural thing that these words didn't exist in. I mean, the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek. The words we're using aren't there. But for the sake of my witness, I don't cuss. It's not because I think there's an automatic sin in it, but because I can limit and want to limit my freedom for the sake of my witness, whether I'm in a room full of Christians or walking around on the street. I don't use that language because I know what, what it automatically lumps me into. It automatically makes me look like everybody else in the world. The thing is, is that Jesus isn't, his issue in this passage isn't the meat. His issue is that these people are sitting down in these places and they're eating the meat as if they've been, and, 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 and joining in on the celebration of these idols that this meat has been sacrificed to. And she, this woman, is telling people, eat it. It's better to eat it and fit in than not eat it and go hungry. No, it's not. In fact, that kind of life doesn't even require patient endurance, does it? That kind of life doesn't express love in any way, does it? Except the love for self, because I'm more concerned about fitting in than enduring in the faith so that Jesus can be known. Just think about what it means when we look more like the world than the one who saves us. Well, his call on the church in Thyatira, because of his complaint, his call is clear. Jesus' call on the church is reject the lies of Jezebel, right? Reject the lies that she's speaking. These are intolerable, these, these false truths from a false prophet. One who she promotes herself as a prophet. She didn't get tested. Her message isn't being tested. I'm a prophet. Anybody can stand up and say that. Her, her words are not being measured and weighed against the rest of the scripture, the rest of the teaching of, of the Bible. They're not being weighed against who's got, got, God's holiness or his, um, his righteousness. He's not, they're not being weighed against what he says is right and true. Reject those lies. These are intolerable. So when you hear the world around you or you hear someone within the church standing up and saying what you know to be false, you reject it. Tell others to reject it also. Reject those lies. That's what we know to be intolerable. We live in a world filled with sin and we have to tolerate it because we're not going to conform them to the likeness of Christ without us preaching the gospel. But we can reject the lies. We can point out the lies and point people to the truth. We can show that we do not have to tolerate that. They are intolerable. But inside the church especially, there is no place for false teachers or false teaching. There is no place for those things in our lives. We reject them flat out. They do not get tolerated. He calls them to repent of their spiritual adultery. It's interesting here, as, as Jesus comes and he highlights the problem, he, he refers to two different groups of people and, and what he's going to do to her because of what she's doing to these two different, two different groups of people. First, in verse 20, but I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel 
who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants, who are apparently people who are in the church, right? They're people who are apparently members of the body. And, and she is seducing them, deceiving them, leading them to a place where they practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. You go down just a little bit further in verse 23, 20, well, read 22 into 23 just for the context. Behold, I will throw, you on, throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, that seems to be the servants again, who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. So there's his servants that she's seducing. Her, the, his servants that, that she's leading to a place to commit spiritual adultery. But there's her children, her followers, those who are committed to, him, to her and her false teaching that he is going to kill. But clearly to the church, repent of your spiritual adultery. And notice this isn't the whole church. It's not like everybody in the church is this. It's not like this is the, the, the biggest chunk of the church. But brother, sister, Christian, hear me. If you are given to something, I, I, I pick something like, 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 well, sexual immorality. If you're given to, to devoting your life to the pursuit of idolatry, and I don't, we don't have statues we're giving ourselves to. But if you prioritize sports, leisure, Comfort, acceptance by the crowd, uh, alcohol, um, uh, I'm just, whatever's coming into my mind, I'm just saying it. If you're prioritizing anything other over, if you're prioritizing anything over Christ's call on your life, his authority over you, then you may be guilty of spiritual adultery and you need to hear this call, Repent. His grace is sufficient, but it is never an excuse for you to continue in sin. His grace is sufficient, but it's never an excuse for you not to pursue holiness and righteousness. His grace is sufficient, and it is transformative, and it is eternal. But it does not give us the right to live however we feel like we want to live. Repent of your spiritual adultery. He calls the church and those who are committing that spiritual adultery, he calls them to it. And then the third thing he calls them to is hold fast. Look, I don't, for, for those of you that aren't listening to her, that haven't adopted these deep things of Satan, that haven't given in to, this, to these lies that she's telling, I don't put another thing on you. I don't have another responsibility. I don't have another call. I don't have another, just hold fast. Continue to love Continue to be faithful. Continue to serve. Continue to patiently endure. Hold fast what you have. And he's not even saying keep growing. Like he's celebrating the fact that from the moment they first believed to the moment that he's writing this letter, their works have increased. He's not saying I, I, I'm not even demanding greater, a greater increase just to at least hold fast. Is he saying we shouldn't continue to grow? No, no, continue to grow. But at a minimum, Hold fast what you have. Do not let it go. Do not turn aside. Do not sit down. Do not give in to the lies of the evil one. The, the, the life Jesus calls us to is not a sprint. It's, it's a marathon. It's a day in, day out, just running the race. 
Eugene Peterson captures the idea of this in his book, Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's a book I, I would commend to you. He, he walks through the Psalms of Ascent and he, and he repeatedly draws out this idea that this is what God calls us to, long obedience in the same direction. I've got a quote from it I'm going to share with you. It's lengthy. The words are on the screen behind me. I would encourage you just to read along and, and just see what, what this is after. Eugene Peterson writes, One aspect of the world that I have been able to, to identify as harmful to Christians is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. Our sense of reality has been flattened by 30-page abridgments. It's not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. In a world that prizes itself and makes itself proud on 25 and 35 minute sermons, there might be something to be heard here. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ but there is a dreadful attrition rate. Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence for mature Christian discipleship is slim. In our kind of culture, anything, even news about God, can be sold if it is packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. We know this to be true. We live in a city filled with megachurches that have become megachurches based on their marketing. Maybe God's work as well, but, but much on marketing. There's enthusiasm for the patient acquisition. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Religion in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset. Religion is understood as a visit to an attractive site to be made when we have adequate leisure. For some, it is a weekly jaunt to church. For others, occasional visits to special services. That's the church of C&E. Some, with a bent for religious entertainment and sacred diversion, plan their lives around special, retreats, or special events like retreats, rallies, and conferences. We go to see a new personality, to hear a new truth, to get a new experience, and so, some, so somehow expand our otherwise humdrum lives. The religious life is defined as the latest and newest zen, faith, healing, human potential, parapsychology, successful living, choreography in the chancel, Armageddon. We'll try anything until something else comes along. Man, there's this lie that's being told in the church today that says we need the next new thing. So we look forward to someone coming along and saying it's okay to live in sexual morality. It's okay for you to eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's okay if you look like the rest of the culture. It's okay. If your life reflects them and your actions reflect them more than they reflect the Savior, Savior who saved you. Because we want that new thing. Because ultimately we're dissatisfied with the one true thing. We all deserve condemnation. There is no hope 
in this world apart from Christ. We come every week to celebrate the fact that Jesus is coming again. The one who died in our place for our sin, who's given us access to the throne of heaven, who's given us hope, is coming to get us. He calls us to a long apprenticeship in holiness. He calls us to long obedience in the same direction, always repenting from sin and in faith following him. And any, any lie that's presented as truth that goes against that in any way is absolutely intolerable and has no place to be tolerated. And he's doing this. He tells us he's doing this so that all the churches know. So that you and I, sitting here 2,000 years later, know that he is the one who sits in authority. He is the one who knows what's right and wrong. He is the one who searches mind and heart. He is the one who has the authority and the power, the ability to repay each of us for our works. And he calls us to hold fast in these works of love, faithfulness, service, and patient endurance. He calls us to a, to a long apprenticeship in holiness, a, a, a life, a, a long um, obedience in the same direction. He calls us to these things. And he commits to us the same things he commits to the church in Thyatira. Condemnation for the false teachers and their followers. I will throw her onto a sick bed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent. Here's Christ's promise to us. The evil, the wicked will not really prosper. Oh, it looks like they do sometimes. They get their way. They seem to be having so much fun. They seem to be so happy. They will not prosper. So repent. Repent. So necessary. Repent. I have no doubt every one of us in our life can see ways in which we have tolerated false teaching so that we can justify our sinful action. Repent. Hold fast to what we have been given in Christ. Those, those, those who are her children, who it's demonstrated through their lack of repentance, it's demonstrated through their commitment to her. Those who are her children, who she gives birth to through her false teaching, he will condemn with death. Oh, brother, sister, let's not live like them. Let's not tolerate that kind of thing for one another. Let's call one another away from those things that are destructive to us. But then for those that hear, for those that conquer, he promises, he commits to them authority with him for those who hold fast. I, I would just point you to this end that first he immediately calls out authority. I will give you authority. And what's beautiful about this is we lost authority. We lost position. We lost our dominion. We were created to reflect him and represent him. You are my image. I am blessing you, he says to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. Rule and subdue. And we were ruled and subdued by the creation. We were ruled and subdued by created things. The serpent comes in, deceives the woman. <laughs> and then as the curse unfolds and sin begins to have its way, we begin to destroy one another. 
But everyone who hears, everyone who, everyone who listens, who conquers, he is going to give authority again. He is going to bring us to our rightful place as kingdoms, as a kingdom of priests, as reflections and representations of him in the world to come. He is giving us authority, and he is giving us himself. And I, I get that as, as, we, as we look at, at this final promise. He will rule with them a rod of iron as with, when earth and pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. He's giving us authority in the same way that he gave, he received authority. I will give him the morning star. And there's lots of conversation about what this morning star is. Is it representative of Venus? Is it representative of some other thing? Is it simply victory? Yes, I do think it's victory. But more than that, in Revelation 22, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you, think, to you about these things for the churches. Again, he's wanting his church to know who he is and what he's doing. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. We get him. And alongside him, we will rule for all eternity. How that's going to work out, how a bunch of people are going to be exercising authority, I don't exactly know. Because it doesn't seem to work in the world we live in today. That as soon as everybody gets authority, you, you know, the saying, there's too many chiefs and not enough Indians, too, too, too many cooks in the kitchen kind of thing. But suddenly I think when all of a sudden everybody's using the authority they've been given to bless and benefit and bestow God's goodness on one another, authority is not used to, to exalt oneself. I think all of a sudden we're going to so appreciate that we each have been given authority just like he's been given authority. Tolerating the intolerable is neither faithful nor loving. We must reject the lies of false teachers that lead to anything other than patient endurance as faithful witnesses. Let's pray.